And last week we were looking at the end of chapter 3 and we saw that Peter and John, uh, just by a very quick review, Peter and John were going to the temple. And they met somebody along the way. And we saw that there was both adversity and opportunity when they walked to the temple. And the, uh, the adversity was represented by who? That, well, well, no, that's going to be that's going to be next. But it, but in the end of chapter three, there was some adversity. They ran across somebody that was that was yeah, the, the cripple that was under some pretty adverse conditions. Right. He's been a cripple. That wasn't their adversity. That wasn't theirs. No. Right. But that was the adversity that we saw in in the story, if you will. So they ran across this this man that had been crippled, and we don't know for how long. It appears as though perhaps it might have been his entire life. That we're not told that, but he was crippled at least forty years, and but we don't know exactly how old he was. But that's a pretty good indication that he was crippled from birth, and uh, and he was there at the at the temple, and the opportunity was what. Not to correct you, but it said now a man crippled from birth. Does it say from birth? Yeah, it does. In your translation? In my translation. Mine too. By golly, he was crippled from birth then, because how do we know that? <laughs> because it is written. It is written. So we have this crippled man from birth that his ankles didn't work. He couldn't stand. But what was the opportunity? glory to God. But what was the opportunity for John and Peter? To heal. Pardon me? To heal him. This man had been sitting there. They said that the he the the the, the scriptures say that he was brought there every day to for a handout. That's how he survived a handout. And the opportunity was Peter and John went by and they saw the opportunity, seized the moment, and in the spirit took action. They did something. Nobody else had done that. They just took advantage of the opportunity. That's all they did. And so, when he was healed, this crippled man then took some action of his own. What did he do? When he jumped, what does, what, what does, what does that what does that conjure up in your mind? He was happy. He was happy, joy, and it was an immediate thing. And he was, I mean, you talk, and what did he do after he jumped up? Praise God. God, ran into the temple and made one heck of a commotion. There was a heck of a commotion because it was at the hour of prayer. There were a lot of Jews there that were praying because that's what they did. That was their tradition. And so they were there in the ninth hour of the day according to the Jewish time clock, and they were praying. So there was a lot of people there. And so everybody then ran to John and Peter. Everybody, it says all of them. So the whole, everybody that was in the temple, as we read this literally, ran over to John and to Peter to see what was happening. I think all those people would have been Facebookers if Facebook would have been around then because they were just curious, weren't they? I think Facebook people are curious. They want to know what's happening. These people want to know what's happening. It's human nature. 
And so there was a supernatural event that was going on here. And so, uh, and so what did Peter and John do with that opportunity when everybody ran up to them? Gave a chance to preach. <laughs> Peter got an opportunity to preach his second, his second message. And so there he was in the temple. And as we were looking at this last week, uh, you know, by way of application, uh, I was mentioning Brenda, who always, and then Brenda shared a great story. Thank you so much for that, about leaving on Sundays and going to yard sales, all dressed up in her church finest. And people ask her why she's dressed so nice. And she says she's just come from church. She's just taking advantage of an opportunity. They ask the question and she tells them the truth. That's simple, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That's all that Peter did. Mm-hmm. Filled with the Spirit, Peter took advantage of the opportunity for the second time, and he preached. And what did he preach before we move on? The gospel. The gospel. He preached Jesus. He preached faith. He preached authority because they were asking about the healing, and, and he told them he had healed in the name of Jesus. He didn't get credit for it. He kind of Yes, he did second time that he called out the Jews for what they had done to Jesus, making them think. Then he gave them an out also in that, as I recall. He gave them an out. But he said, listen, y'all had some responsibility here for killing the Messiah, whom God raised from the dead. So, we see so far in Acts we see that the promised Holy Spirit comes. The church is birthed in a big way. The apostles are supernaturally empowered, aren't they? The apostles are supernaturally empowered. Yes? And what else? Speaking of empowerment. And what? The Holy Spirit is empowered? No, they were what? Go ahead. Ah, well, the ah, everybody was empowered because they were all filled with the Spirit. And then immediately, the church just explodes, right? There's, they're speaking in tongues. There is a supernatural event that is taking place that gets the whole of Jerusalem, at least around where they were, a buzz. It is a buzz. And I think that it's important as we move forward to understand that Peter and John then heal this man at the temple and it causes a bit of a stir. And so there's a little bit of a mess in the temple right now as we enter into chapter 4. But a mess according to whom? The Pharisees. A mess according to the Pharisees. You see, we're about to see in chapter 4... This birth church, empowered by the Spirit, people that didn't have a clue what was about to happen to them, it is now happening to them, and better yet, through them. And we're about to see Christianity and religion collide. That's what we're about to see in starting in chapter 4. And before we do that, I wanted to just share with you a little story from a commentary that I use in my study, one of them. And I'm not going to tell you who wrote this until I'm done with the story, but it's written in the first person singular, 
And I'll share with you who writes the story in a minute because you'll all know the name. And the commentator was talking about this conflict between Christianity and religion. And he talks about it in terms of this small church that had dwindled down to four, five, six people. And they were trying to figure out what to do about it. This was in the 1960s, by the way. Some 21 centuries, 20 centuries, 19 centuries, I guess. It would be 19 centuries, wouldn't it? It would be the 20th century, yeah. That's a long time after what we're going to be looking at here in Acts. In 1960s, early, small church, four or five people, it was dwindling. They were trying to figure out what to do because were they a church anymore? There was only four or five of them. But they faithfully got together and they were figuring out that, you know, what is it that we need to do here? There's got to be a better way. There's only five or six. Kind of sounds familiar, huh? We've seen that happen in the valley recently. But somebody decided, because they were in a location where there was a seminary, somebody decided that they should pull a seminary student out and ask if they would teach because none of the four or five or six people that were left were really gifted in that way. So a seminary student decided that he would do that. And so he came every week and he brought one thing. And he opened it and he began to teach expositorily, <laughs> book by book, Chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And over a period, a fairly short period of time, there were then 10 people in, the, in this little church. And then pretty soon there were 20. And then pretty soon there were 80. And, and just every week, this seminary student came and he just preached and taught, really. It was, just a, it was a Bible study, the Word of God. And there was no singing, and there was no piano, and there was no drums, and there was no nothing but the Word of God taught. And so pretty soon, these people began to understand that they could actually study the Word of God on their own. And this seminary student was teaching them how to do that. His name was Harold, by the way. And so before long, they decided they'd better call a pastor. Well, it took them two years to find a pastor. And in that two years, there was well over a hundred people that were showing up to be taught in an expository way out of the Word of God. These people decided that they were going to hire a pastor. And so they did. And the pastor's first order of business was to tell the seminary student that his services were no longer needed. Because the pastor was concerned about church growth. And they had leveled off at about a hundred or so people. There was only about 65 seats in the sanctuary where they were meeting. So people were standing up because there wasn't even enough room for extra chairs. And in a matter of weeks, after this new pastor was hired, 
and began to teach on church growth and his wife began to teach a women's ministry and she started on a on a study of great Americans from history and in no time at all there were eight or ten people left in the church everybody had left and the fellow that was hired for that church his name was Chuck Swindoll and that was Chuck Swindoll's first church that he was called to out of seminary and he tells the story and then recounts how painful it was to come out of seminary where he was taught everything except the right thing. He was taught everything except the right thing. He was taught that the Bible, not to get too far into the Bible, because it was about solid church growth, and he had a liberal position when he came out of seminary. And in his first church, he went from 100 to about six people in a matter of weeks. And he said God used that to radically change him. And, and it's an amazing story in this commentary that he writes about the clash between biblical Christianity and religion. Because he was the religious one. And as he's writing this commentary in Acts, he can totally relate to chapter 4 of the book of Acts, where John and Peter are really confronted with religion as opposed to Christ. Organization, not. Well, and, and we see... Uh, I, I got a, a quote from Karl Marx that was talking about Christianity and Karl, we know Karl Marx, not exactly a believer, but Karl Marx said that religion is the sigh, S-I-G-H, of the oppressed, the heart of the heartless world and the soul of the soulless conditions. It is the ooh, opium of the people. But you see, what he really meant, he was talking about Christianity, but what he really meant, because he didn't understand, is he was talking about religion. Because what is religion? That's a question. So what is religion? It's a man-made institution, which is the infallible. Okay. A system of beliefs. Where they put structure in place of the Savior. If you're not careful. And religion, I think, sometimes tells people that there is an organization that has the answers for them. That will fill their hearts and their, and their needs and their desires. And, and has all the big questions of life answered. Religion has that. You can relate to that, can't you? Yep. 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 You've been there, haven't you? Uh -huh. So we know about the religion that you came out of mm -hmm. that had all the answers and was the religion was the authority. Mm -hmm. And so we see that with religion that if you fit into a system as opposed to just falling in love with the Lord, we see what happens. <coughs> you can't fit into the system 
if you no, don't no, just no, turn no. your life over to Christ. What's the biggest lie, before we jump into chapter 4 here, what's the biggest lie of uh, religion? They all have the same God. That's one of them. Okay. That is the way to the Good people oh. go to heaven. Oh, that oh, they, they good people go good to heaven. Good people go to Yeah, if you're good, you're going to go to heaven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is the common denominator of the religious systems in the world, generally speaking? You've got to earn your way to God. Earn self works. Mm-hmm. So what we see is when Karl Marx was talking about religion that is, that is you know, sucking the soul right out of people, essentially, is what he's saying. And we see that, that religious systems force people into works. The works orientation of most world religions would, would have you believe, Scotty, that this God that, that, you're, that you're worshiping, that this God, you need to gain favor with him and you have to work for that favor. And then maybe, just maybe, if you do enough work and just maybe, just maybe, if you're good enough, just maybe one day you'll be able to get into heaven. Maybe. Maybe. Isn't it? You're not exactly sure. Or which planet you're even going to be on. Exactly. Okay. All right. And so we see that, that, that that's, a, that's the deadly lie. That's, the, that's really the big sin. It's all, about, it's all about works. Where religion clashes head on with Christianity. Because you were in a system that said that they believed on Jesus Christ. And it's even in the name of, of their religious system, the Church of Jesus Christ, it starts with. Okay. Of Latter-day Saints. But we know that there, are, there is no such thing as a Latter-day Saint. We know that, biblically speaking. So every world system that isn't Christ-centered isn't biblically centered either, right? And so we see this big clash that's just about to take place. Because after Peter and John took the opportunity to heal the crippled guy, um, Peter's sermon affected a lot of people. His first sermon... What was the what was the impact of his first sermon? Yeah, yeah. But who also did it capture the attention of besides those three thousand? The Sadducees, the Pharisees, and everybody else in town that was around to listen because they were all interested, weren't they? It captured their attention, and the confrontation that is about to take place is not dissimilar to what Chuck Swindoll was describing in his story of coming out of seminary, his very first church as a Christian pastor. I find that fascinating. I find that fascinating. So let's turn to Acts chapter 4. He's the teacher that they hired later that fired the seminary student and... and <laughs> and went from a hundred to to, yeah, to five. Okay. That's it's a very fascinating story. Um, this this one particular commentary that that Swindoll wrote, I, I'm really enjoying it because I like his writing anyway. Because he's yeah. he's a simpleton. He keeps it simple for those of us that aren't very smart, which I put myself first in that category, you know. And he keeps it he keeps it very simple, and he fills it with with real life stories like this in terms of application and how it's related to his life. And so 
So this is a real story of, of, of a conservative Christian who didn't start that way. And God got a hold of him in a very big way after he graduated from seminary, which he will later tell you is one of the reasons why God led him to get really actively involved in seminary as a leader and director um, in, in, uh, in, in Texas where he's, where he's from. That's where his roots are, and that's where his first church was, in a little town in Greenville, Texas. But anyway, back to, back to Acts chapter 4, because we're about to see this clash. Um, Susan, yeah. <laughs> since you're the designated reader out of the NIV, would you read the first 12 verses of Acts chapter 4? Sure. Okay. The priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, and then know this, you and all of the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, and that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Wow. So what's going on here? They have got to be scared to death, number one. Who's the they? Uh, the, the leaders, okay. Pharisees and Sadducees. Okay. okay. Number one, the body was missing and they couldn't account for that. They had to bribe the soldiers. So, even before this miracle, they, they were in a quandary because this body had disappeared. And then they see this healing situation. They've got to be scared to death for two reasons. Number one, this is a threat to their power. And number two, this is this is a threat to. They were working in collusion with the Roman, with Pontius Pilate, the Romans. Okay. And if if the people, these people, rebelled, then the Romans would would hold the Pharisees in account for the rebellion. So they were, I'm sure, scared to death. They were scared to death. Now let's take it from twenty thousand feet. All those truths, and let's 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 pull this puppy in for a landing, and let's talk about who was there. Verse. One. Who was there? The captain. The priest, the what? And the captain of the temple guard. And who else? Okay, and who else? And who else? Everybody in the temple that was there for prayer. Dude, there was a crowd. Okay, so now we got to figure out, I think it's important because... There is some real concern here because these people are threatened. The leaders 
are threatened. So that would be the leaders, the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees. So who the heck are they? Who are the priests? What are the priests? What? Who are they? What do they do? They're the leaders of the Jews. Well, more specifically than that. Well, more specifically, what was the what was the priest's job in the temple? They feel like they're the ears to God. Okay. What did they do? Sacrifices. They did the sacrifices. They were the senior pastors. Let's put it in the let's put it in the terminology that we understand. So the priests there, what they were doing is they were in charge of observing the laws of Moses, weren't they? They did the sacrifices. They did they did all the rites that were mandated by the law. Uh, they were the ones in the temple that were that were that were conducting the worship service. Okay, we'll put it in those terms. I don't know if they were the ones that were teaching though, because it seems like unless. I don't know exactly who was teaching, but it seems like maybe Pharisees or Sadducees, or, or Sadducees might be the most judicial part of it. Pharisees seem like more uh, teaching. Yeah, teaching part. Correct. But I think the priests. I mean, I've never thought priests were the ones that taught no. anything. No, the priests. If that was said, that is that would be incorrect. The priests' job in the temple was exclusively to provide for observing the laws and conducting all of the rites and ceremonies and you can call it what you will, but that was their job. That was a full-time gig. They weren't teaching anybody anything. They were, uh, they were in charge of the observance of the law. That's what the priest's role was. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the groups that was there. They are, when are they in the temple? Always. There's always something going on in the temple. There are priests in the temple, and they're there. John? Judaism was not a was a theocracy. It was a form of government, kind of like Islam, disguised as a religion. They were using, they were marketing the Old Testament and Moses' laws to enrich themselves and control the people. Yep. And that's what a theocracy is. That's right. And we will see that in just a minute in terms of what's actually happening here in the temple because it becomes very important for what happens next. So, in terms of the captain of the temple guard, the captain of the temple guard. What? What's a temple guard? They're police. It, they're police. They're the tylers. The enforcers. <laughs> <laughs> the enforcers that sit in the back of the room and they, they make sure that the money's not, not stolen and that, that the bad guys don't get in. Who who could who wasn't allowed in the temple? Gentiles. The Gentiles. These people made sure that no Gentile got past the gate so that they could get into the temple. That was their job. They are the captain of the temple guard. And then of course we have the Sadducees and now, this becomes very important because this is where the threat was. I don't think that the priests were too threatened, quite frankly. They were just observing the duties that came with the role that they were, that they were uh, in, that they had been given. And, I, and the temple guard wanted to make sure that there was some order in terms of security, but now we're dealing with the Sadducees. So, uh, Kathy said that there were Sadducees and there were Pharisees, right? And two different two different classes, two different groups of people, we're told that the Sadducees were there because they came up to Peter and John. And so what is a Sadducee? It's 
Okay, what, that's what they believe. But but who were they? Who were the Sadducees in the first century, especially as it relates to being in the temple here? Well, were they more like the upholding the law, the judges, the not teaching it? But okay, uh, yeah. Keep let's keep going down that. Let's keep going down that road. Dispensers of the law, sort of. Okay, sort of dispensers of the law. Um, try to relate it to perhaps. Uh, well, I don't want to go there. Uh, what else? Judges. Okay. Anyone else? Well, they didn't believe in resurrection of the dead. That's that's that was their belief structure. But what was what did they do? What was their role? What how did they conduct themselves? The Sadducees. <coughs> Pardon me? Were they like okay. These, this was a group of people, they were the religious and they were they were the religious power brokers of the day. They were they were the political, the religious political, outside of Rome, okay, we're talking about Judaism here. They were the religious and and religious political power brokers of the day. And they had supreme political and religious power over everything that was going on here at the, in the temple. I mean supreme political and religious power. They were clearly the power brokers. And they controlled what was going on in the temple. This was a powerful group of people. And, and they were, by nature, these men, they were men, these men... Um, had a couple of things going for them at the time because they were both religious, political, and economic powerhouses within Judaism. So what might that tell you about their position? They were what? They were powerful. They called the shots. These were tremendously powerful, and I think that's the point that needs to be made. And so now we know what they believe too, don't we? Because we've read ahead. Now, did John and Peter know what the belief structure was of the Sadducees group? Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Of course they did. Because they might not have been real educated men, but they, they were educated about the law and they were Jews. And so they understood that these Sadducees here were wealthy, ambitious power brokers of the day. And, and, it's, and they're standing in their court when all this is going down. And that's kind of the point. And so in terms of what they believed, they were legalists. They didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in anything that was supernatural they didn't believe in. They believed that God was distant, that God was not involved in human affairs. And it was beautiful for them, wasn't it? Because if God wasn't involved in human affairs and in charge, they could be. <laughs> it just fit. It fit the motif, didn't it? So they were large and in charge. And they were sticking the money from the temple in their pocket. They got rich off of religion. Not much has changed. The Congress is the Pharisees and the... People on Wall Street, the bankers, are the Sadducees. Yeah, well, what we see is we see that, that they're going to be before the court here, and we're going to see what this court is made up of in just a minute. So that's who was there. You see, these people, that they were the temple people, and they were the, they were the observant religious Jews, and, and then there's, there's John 
and and there's Peter and there's this there's this whack job that's running around the temple praising God because he's been crippled from birth and he's and he's praising God miraculously for what for what took place. That's the scene. That's the scene. And so then what happens next? Verse two. These people are torqued because John, it says, they were greatly distressed because the apostles, these two guys, had come into the temple. Did they have every right to come into the temple? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, they were Jews. They'd been there before. But they didn't have the right to teach. Didn't they? What did Jesus do when he went to the temple? But according to the Jewish religious leaders only their little it wasn't the that they were teaching it's what they were teaching yeah. it says they were greatly distressed because the apostles were teaching the people what and how were they proclaiming this resurrection of the dead in Jesus name and who Peter reminded them that they had crucified. And so uh, these are very important foundational truths as we go forward because we see the beginning of the clash between biblical Christianity and religion and the religious system of the day with its power and its power brokers. And so so they... they I'm, now you know why they were greatly distressed because the Sadducees were driving the bus here and they were upset with John and with Peter because they had healed this man and they had healed him in the name of Jesus and they were teaching resurrection. Oh, because they were sharing the gospel as God had called them to do. So what did they do? They put him in jail. Why did they do that? Get him out of their hair. It was nighttime. Okay. And, and why is it nighttime? Why is that significant that it's nighttime so they put him in jail? So the people couldn't see. Mm. Yeah, they had, they had to put him away at night because they, they, they weren't going to take care of business at night. It, it, and what else did it do for them? Gave him some time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just let logic be your guide here. It gave him some time. But there was another problem. Not only were they teaching this in the temple, this gospel message, this nonsense to the Sadducees, what was the result of what John and Peter had done with this healing and the preaching of the gospel in the temple? Now, now it's multiple times that Peter has done this. Yeah, about 5,000 it says here, and, and they, they were numbered in men, so of course, you know, most would believe that, because that's the way that culture was at the time, if it's numbered 5,000 in men, how about women and children that came to Christ during that time? So, who knows? Maybe double, triple? I don't know. The church is in an explosive situation here, simply because these two men are empowered by the Spirit and they took an act of obedience by not missing an opportunity to heal a crippled beggar. 
They showed compassion on a crippled beggar that people had been walking by. I find it fascinating. The Sadducees, the Pharisees who did teaching, the, 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 the priests, the temple guard, they all walked by this guy. They were in a quandary because they crucified Jesus for the same reasons. And now what, what happens, they open Pandora's box. Okay, and, what, and so they were threatened, you said earlier. What's, what's the threat? Peter, Peter and John, there's two guys. What's the threat? Their authority and their position. Threatening their authority and their position. When the people are responding. That's the real problem. They control. They, these people had a public relations nightmare on their hands. All of a sudden, the temple is exploding with people that are responding. I mean, this is a supernatural act of God, but the Sadducees, they didn't see it that way. They only saw the threat to their own livelihood. They, they, could, they could see their bank account shrinking. You can, you, can almost, you can almost feel their motivation when you're looking at this in terms of, of what they're doing. To poor John and Peter... They weren't excited at all about the fact that now all of a sudden there's eight or maybe 18,000 people. We don't know what the period of time is. We're not told, but it's a fairly condensed period of time here. And this church exploded. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a mega event yeah. that's happening in Jerusalem. And they are threatened. Well, and so on their turf, too. On their turf. In their turf. Yeah, in their turf. Yeah. So, so the next thing that happened in verse 5 is the next, day is the next day the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Okay. Who's there? And who else? Them same guys. <laughs> okay. And then, and then Luke tells us even more in verse 6. Who are these people? Yeah. They called in the troops, didn't they? You see the seriousness of the clash between Christ and, and religion? This is a big clash. They called in all the big guns. Verse 7 says, They had Peter and John brought before them and they began to question them. By what power or what name do you do this? You see, all the religious bigwigs were there. All of them. They called them all in. They needed to deal with this, and they needed to squish it, and they needed to squish it quickly, didn't they? Because this was a nightmare. So, they're on religious trial here, aren't they? Mm -hmm. And what's the role of the Sadducees? And, and where do you suppose this is taking place? Did, have you, did you do any... Reading on, on the on on the high priest and and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and the whole high priest family and the Sadducees and the and the priests and what's what's going on? Where they're at the temple. They're at the temple and and what is the what is the anybody know the name of the of the of the order uh, uh, where this trial is taking place? Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin. And what is the Sanhedrin? The ruling body of yeah. the Jewish culture and people. That numbered 72 men from these ruling classes that were completely in charge and in control. It's kind of like a mixture, if we were trying to relate it to what it would be like today, 
it would kind of be like Peter and John were in in this Sanhedrin, which was kind of like a joint session of Congress and the Mafia. And the Supreme Court. Huh? And the Supreme Court. Yeah, they all came together. Alright? That's the Sanhedrin. Because the Sanhedrin was it what do we know about the Sanhedrin? <coughs> Not from what Acts tells us, but just from other reading that we've done, just to get a handle on, on who these people were and how they operated. Just generally, what do we know about the Sanhedrin? They were there for a while. Okay. Were they? I'm not, I don't know that. Were they appointed for life? They're like Supreme Court people? Maybe. I don't know. Closed door. Stroke, closed door. Yeah, what else do we know? Democracy in those days, so there had to be, you know, basically nepotism. Pretty clearly there was nepotism. We, we see that, and Luke tells us that. That's pretty clear. That's a good point. And what else? What else the, about the Sanhedrin? Yeah, these people operated on the basis of, of absolute authority. And it was, you talk about nepotism, these, these people were hand-picked, completely <coughs> corrupt, 100% in it for themselves, at least, at least by design. They were very selfish in the way that they ruled the temple and the, and the, and the Jewish system, if you will. And they were they were very politically motivated under a religious banner, right? And they worked from intimidation. And they, what else? How else would they operate? I mean, we we've just read this in Acts, and John and Peter are very there. similar to today. They, you, you go along to get along. Yeah. Consensus is truth to these people. Yeah. I mean, there was manipulation in the Sanhedrin, oppression. This is the church, remember. This is the church. Manipulation, oppression, power, intimidation, greed, wealth. This was the religious system of the day in Judaism. And in walked Peter and John. After healing this man, being empowered by the Holy Spirit with something very supernatural that was going on. And the Sadducees are saying, but we don't believe in anything that's supernatural. I don't know, guys. i got to try to put myself in the seat of the Sanhedrin. And there's 72, and we're in this ruling court, and we're, in, we're large and in charge. And these two knuckleheads come in, and we're threatened by this because I don't want you, don't be messing with my status quo, which is what they did. They went to the temple, and they messed with their status quo, and all of a sudden, they're having to put them on trial. But they got one problem, as Mark pointed out. People have responded. Because who else did they do this to? Jesus. It's a fascinating response when we see that now it's Peter and John. And Peter told them, the same Jesus that you did this to... <laughs> Is the one in whose name we? It is his name. It's the power of his name, supernaturally, that, that healed this guy. We have nothing to do with it. 
We're just being obedient. And these people are trying to figure this out. You read the book Killing Jesus. The Romans allowed this to go on, with this theocracy to go on, as long as they kept the people in line. Kept the people pressed, they could make all the money in the world. But Caesar told in no indefinite or terms that if there's rebellion within your ranks, we're going to come down on you. Your power is gone. Well, what's really interesting is you see, this was the church. This is what this was. These were the religious leaders of the day in, in Judaism, and and this is what was going on. You see, but they were operating in a in a in a void, and they were void of what the truth. You see, they were just void of the truth. They didn't want to receive the truth. This should sound very familiar to us. It, not, because nothing has changed. And so because they're operating in this void without the truth, you can see this is, this is how power without the truth operates. Look around. You lived in the town where this happens all the time. It's Washington, D.C. But it's at the state house in Sacramento, too. You see, because power... That 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 is that is in place without the truth necessarily has to operate this way because it's not based on anything. The principle is the same. It's the same, and that is that they want to intimidate people by striking fear into them, don't they? And then they want to use tradition. We, we've always done it that way. This is the law. I mean, we, we've always done it this way. You come into the temple and the priests did the they, they they did what they did because they've always done it that way. And the Sadducees ruled with a with an iron fist and the Sanhedrin did it the way they did it because that's the way they'd always done it. And it had no basis in truth. And they weren't interested in listening to Peter and John who were proclaiming nothing but the truth. They didn't want to hear it because of the threat. This is the setup for the clash of biblical Christianity and religion. Because I've heard it so many times. Well, I'm spiritual, but I'm not very religious. I'm not sure what that means when somebody says that, but I can tell you this. These people were religious. And legalistically so. Amen? Legalistically so. So the Sanhedrin, being the religious ruling party, have them on trial. Verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, is going to talk to them. What does he tell them? Because Peter's a regular guy, right? Well, he kind of calls them out because he's saying, look, we did something nice for this person. Mm -hmm. And you're giving us a hard time about it. I mean, if, are you just holding us? Like, are we on trial here because we were compassionate and we did this act of, 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 of kindness? He was blamed after all. He was, he was crippled. Because then in verse 10 he says, well, if that's the case, then know this. Now he's about to speak the truth to the Sanhedrin. See, the only other time we know that this was happening is when Jesus did the same thing. We saw what happened to him. And I wonder what Peter and John had to be thinking. Filled with the Spirit. Were they shaking in their boots? Or sandals in this case? I don't think so. He sounds pretty 
sure of himself. Because he turns it around on him and says, you guys are the ones that killed Jesus. I don't see any fear uh-uh. in Peter as he's about to respond to the Sanhedrin that could have just could have had his head. I've never been in a position where I've never stood before a judge. <laughs> um, uh, not in a court of law, anyway. And, um, and I've never been in a place where, where if I said the wrong thing, it could cost me my life. I haven't been in those kinds of situations. The only thing that we have in common, because most of us haven't done that, with, with, with Peter here standing before the Sanhedrin, is, is we're filled with the same power that he had. The power of the Spirit. Now, in this dispensation, I get that they were gifted in a little differently than we are, but it's the same power. The power that raised Jesus from the dead. And it's in his name that they were doing this healing to begin with. And then he says, verse 10, then know this, here comes the truth now. And he says, you and all the people of Israel hear this. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Remember, he does it again. It's the third time where he tells them, whom, by the way, you crucified. But whom God raised from the dead. That this man stands before you healed. Because that's what they're on trial for, right? healing this man. So it's the third time that he tells them this absolute truth. And it's, by the way, wasn't it God's plan that they'd be handed over to these people and be crucified anyway? Any comments about that? Come on, somebody has to have a comment about that. Here's Peter calling him out. Listen, you're the one that took Jesus. You took him. And said, no, crucify him. We'll, we'll, we'll take the murderer. Release him. No, you, you crucify Jesus. That's my point. That's my point. How does that work? He's calling him out, but it was God's plan to begin with. I don't know. Does that make you scratch your head? Peter's calling him out. What could have he, what could Peter have said? Let the rooster crow three times. <laughs> but I mean, what could it he had said right here? Okay, he could have said that. What else could have he have said? I healed him. <laughs> well, I mean, I find it kind of interesting that we build the basis and foundation of our faith on the fact that Jesus was handed over to be crucified. It's the cross. He's called them out three times. Hey, it's you crucified him. Why is he calling them out then? Because they rejected the Messiah. Okay, so why isn't Peter saying, thank you because he's trying to point them to the truth. <laughs> well, because they didn't know that they were the God's. They didn't know. Who knew? Peter, Peter knew. Here it comes, man. He says, then know this. You guys crucified him. I love that part. See, Luke is just, Luke is a historian. He's just telling it the way it is. This is the way it happened. He says, listen, for the third time, you, do you get it yet? Do you get it yet? You're the ones that crucified him. God raised him from the dead. But it's because of that, you see, it's the power. It's that power that raised this man 
to walk and praise God in the temple before you that now you're threatened by. I think Peter and John just affirmed what they already knew. They they knew that Christ was a threat to them. That's why they killed him. And they knew that, that he was resurrected because they couldn't find the body. And so now these guys come along and just reaffirm the fact of what they already knew. And that's a beautiful thing. So Peter and John are standing before the Sanhedrin. they got to be thinking, I don't know, if I was them, I'd be thinking, well... Maybe they're going to, I'm going to speak the truth like Jesus did. Maybe they're going to crucify me. I mean, come on, there's a precedent set here. And there's two dudes here that are like, it wasn't, I mean, just a little while ago, Peter had his shoes stuck in his mouth like all the time. And now he's standing before the Sanhedrin, the same people that could, that could crucify him for speaking this truth. Which is all Jesus did when he was in front of these people. And so he's got to be thinking that. And then, and then he says something remarkable. Because then he tells them that remember this Jesus? The one that God raised from the dead? Remember, that's the stone you rejected. And then he says, which has become the cornerstone. Right from Psalm 118. He tells them, I mean... This wasn't something that the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the, the, the rulers, the priests, the, they all knew this. This was, not, this was not something new. But just previously, as Mark pointed out, they didn't get the fact that they were the ones that had crucified the Messiah that they were looking for. Except the Sadducees, I don't think, were so much looking for a Messiah. They liked the control. That was a pretty powerful position. See, when you're in a position of power, I love our political system right now. Man, is power being exposed or what? That's what was happening here. The same power that's being exposed in our political system today is the same power that is being exposed in the first century Sanhedrin. It's the same thing. And here's Peter and John saying, listen, this Jesus that you crucified, even though you didn't get it, you didn't understand it, you didn't know, we know, but you didn't know. Jesus was one of those, oh, for three and a half years, Jesus said, I'm going, they're going to kill me. My father's going to raise me on the third day. <laughs> he was telling them and everybody else, and, and it happened. And then he tells them that, hey, Jesus is the stone that you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. It's the cornerstone. What is, and what does that mean? What would, they have, what would they have gathered from that biblical truth from Psalm 118.22? That, by the way, Jesus himself quoted. What did the Sanhedrin think when he said, Jesus is the stone you rejected that has become the cornerstone. The cornerstone of what? Well, the church. The cornerstone of the church, as we know it today. In terms of the, mm. what they thought is that, uh-oh, this is going to replace our gate. Yeah. This is the foundation of a new church. Uh, and it's a threat to to the establishment. Yeah, you see, I think in the worldview of these religious elites that they were standing in front of, uh, Peter and John, 
they were thinking, well, did they think that Peter and John had the authority to do any of this stuff? Mm-hmm. No. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And so, unlearned, unschooled, they were, so here they are. So here's, here's Peter and John, and we're going to see that after they get released, we're going to see them run right straight back to the church, and they're going to tell the church everything that happened, because the church isn't here, they're, they're before the Sanhedrin. So it's like, here we got two pastors standing before the Sanhedrin in a very hostile environment, knowing that they could be sent to be crucified or beheaded. All right? And in the power of the Spirit, they're just speaking the truth to these people. They got to know full well what the consequences could be. They got to know full well. And with, with, with tremendous confidence, they're, they're speaking these things. They're, I don't see any cowardice at all. And they're speaking to them, and they're doing it in the authority in the name of Jesus Christ. And while the Sanhedrin are thinking, horse malarkey, we're the ones that have the authority. You don't have the authority. Who's this Jesus, name of Jesus that you're saying? This is threatening. Because what? Then they're done that. They had to been thinking that. But they've got to deal with these people, you see, because then he tells them that, you see, salvation is found in nobody else. See, this was, now Now he's sticking the knife in and really starting to turn it just a little bit because he's talking about Jesus being the cornerstone. He's talking about the authority in the name of Jesus Christ. Now he's telling them that this salvation that, that they must have been interested in says comes from no one else and no, there's no other name, he tells them. And so, you know, I don't know about you, but my opinion of Peter starts to change at this particular point. Mm-hmm. Strength, confidence, but, you know, just to, boldness. To back up a little bit, you know, talking about how confident that they seemed, you know, before he was uh, denying Christ all over the place. And even though they were with him for three years or, or maybe a little more, they were all together, and they sort of understood, but they didn't get it, you know. But then after Christ died, and after he was resurrected, and after he came back, and they saw that he was alive, they got it. And I think that's what gave them the confidence after the Holy Spirit filled them, that they could stand there in front of this monster authority and speak so boldly. Clear. Go ahead, Tom. No, I was just going to say, I, I think that, you know, if you look at verse 8, the very beginning of what he's talking to them, that then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them when he went on the top. He says that a lot in Acts. And, um, and I think that, you know, I mean, to me, the difference is that Peter was no longer the Peter that he was prior to the resurrection. And so, and I, I'm not even sure, to be honest, that it's kind of confidence, because to me that kind of, you know, connotes um, almost a human effort. I mean, this was a supernatural um, gifting, really, you know, by the Holy Spirit to Peter to say these words. You know, the Holy Spirit gave him the words to say, you know, and I think that there's, it's a supernatural power that enabled Peter to, not just Peter, but all the apostles, you know, to be very different than who they had been, you know, whatever it was, two months before. That that raises a very important question. 
is there then a difference between that that empowering of the spirit in the first century to the empowering of the spirit in the 21st century no there's no you say no that was authoritative that was an authoritative no okay okay so then the next question that comes to my mind anyway based on the statement that you just made mark is that if Peter was filled with the Spirit and, and that confidence has to be held back just a little bit because that, would, that could be considered flesh, if you will. It, it, that, takes, that takes human... Uh, that, that, that brings it into human terms and not supernatural terms, right? Um, uh, what about us? What about us? Well, it's there if we tap into it. Oh, so you're saying that then there is... <laughs> some humanness to it because there's a decision associated with it. There's a choice, you know. Okay. So, um, so now you're confusing me a little bit because now I'm trying to figure out so is it exclusively then the power of the Spirit and Peter had nothing to do with this uh, or he had to be willing to step out and say. Okay, so he, so he, so his willingness then would denote <coughs> a, a choice that Peter made in this process. Yeah. Okay. Well, of course he made a choice. He was with Jesus. He knew. He knew what had happened. He knew. He knew everything. Okay, and okay, but now I want to. I'm, I'm, I'm still a little confused. Because if Peter, filled with the Spirit, went before the Sanhedrin, where he knew that he was going to preach this message, he was going to tell them the truth. It could cost him his life, um, and it's the same under the same. It's the same authority and the same power, supernaturally, that is filling everybody sitting in this room. What is there? A, is there a difference then between Peter and us? Mm-hmm. There is. What's the difference? Well, I think when he was, when they originally were filled with the Spirit, there was these flames and this the sound of wind and stuff. I think it was, uh, it was a, I, I just feel it was different. Mm. You feel it was different. How do you deal with your feelings about it, though? We all have the same amount of Holy Spirit that Peter had. So we've all been given it all. So are you... Then all is still all in Greek, right? All is still all in Greek. It's the same word. In, in every language, it translates the same. All is still all. So people's okay. gifts are different. And Peter was given the spiritual gift of, of, of teaching and, and the boldness. And of, um, is boldness a spiritual gift? Well, he was given the gift to go out and do the teaching. And the it's going to be was saying that when you were in terms like this, that the Holy Spirit would give us the word. Okay. Okay, you use the word us, so that's then you're suggesting that it would be the same for Peter as it is for you. Yeah. Okay. And he was obedient. So he made a choice to stand before the Sanhedrin powerfully. John? Well, Luke talks about this in Luke ten nineteen. You have we have been given authority over all the power of the evil one. Right. And the thing that's so ironic is that uh, why did Peter and John, why were they spared? Holy Spirit spared them 
And then a couple chapters later, Stephen went in, spoke to the same people, and he was stoned. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you, the difference is the outcome. The All authority is given. It doesn't say all the outcomes will be the same because God will be, just as he was glorified in, in uh, uh, Peter and, and John's uh, testimony and he was also glorified in the martyrdom of Stephen. Because Stephen said the same thing to these guys. Uh, but God glorified both situations in a different way. But we're in the moment right now, too. I get it. I get it. And because we're zooming forward just a little bit. But I think that it's important because because Scotty said that, that, that he felt as though... Um, uh, well, we heard what he said in terms of how he felt. Um, uh, but but Mark said that this this that this spirit the power of this spirit because we're told right here Luke tells us historically what was happening here and that Peter was filled with the spirit and it came with fire tongues of fire and that the sound of this of this of this this wind and and it was a it was a supernatural event that took place when these people were filled and then everybody in this room would agree that it's the same spirit that fills everybody that that comes to faith in Christ when you believe you're filled with the spirit it's a it's it's a once and done thing and so everybody in this room is filled with that same spirit no matter how you feel about it the truth is that the believers are filled with the spirit the same spirit there is one Holy Spirit, there is one filling, and you are filled all the way. So Peter, in this very moment, God ordained in his sovereignty for what God had purposed for he and John to do in this moment with this crowd, even with the threat in what is the foundation and the development of the early church. That's the history of our church. That's Christ's church. That's our history. In the very moment for God's purposes, God ordained, bam, the fullness of the Spirit. I'm telling you, he had to have appropriated the full. And I think that's what Mark is talking about, if I could, if I could put words into your mouth. I, he appropriated by decision, he appropriated the fullness of the power of the Spirit that was in him. Peter did have something to do with it. Yes, because he decided right. to be obedient. You see, everything that we've seen, even this, everything that we've seen in the early church development, the foundation starts with obedience. All he did in the moment was say, I'm, this is who I am. And God used him. Mm-hmm. Just who he is, where he was, for such a time as that, to deal with these Sadducees that were trying to squelch this movement of God that they didn't understand was already preordained, wasn't it? They had no clue. Just like when he had to tell them three times, listen, you're the guys that, you're the guys that crucified Jesus. And they're saying, what? No, because they didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't want to accept. They didn't want to think. They were not like the Bereans. They didn't want to go back and have a discussion about it. They were firm and fixed in their convictions, wrongly so, that their power brokering was more important to them than listening to the truth. Because the truth, they didn't think would set them free. 
they thought the truth, the truth, if they had received the truth, it would have set them free spiritually, but it would have cost them something. Their position, their power, their prestige, all of those things. Because the very next thing that happens in Acts, look at verse 13, it says that when, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Don't you love that? That's just what Kathy just said. They had just been with Jesus. They were just filled with the Spirit. They were just who they were. I mean, church, just be who you are. Yeah. Well, and let God use you just who you are, your personality, and that's a that's a that's a gift of God. That's all that Peter was doing. Christ just being who he was. Peter that he was gonna build his church on him and don't you think that after you've screwed up three times <laughs> that you're like, This time I'm not gonna screw up, I'm gonna do what I'm supposed to do. And even the and, and even that uh, on, on this rock I will build my church. We have to even be careful with that just a little bit because that's a study in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Okay? So we even have to be a little bit careful with that. So truth to what you just said, but we have to we have to keep that in context in terms of, and, and that's for a different day. But but the point is is that, is that in, in some ways you're absolutely right. And so, and so what happens here is that they were astonished at what was happening with these guys because they didn't have a clue about the infilling of the Holy Spirit, did they? They weren't in the up. They weren't in the room. They didn't see the, the, the tongues of fire. They didn't hear the, the sound like a wind. They they weren't believers. They were these people were adversaries, right? There was a fight that was going on here, and it was political, it was economic, and it was religious because they had all the power, just like Washington thinks. <laughs> they had all the power. But what happened here is, since they could see that the man who had been healed was standing there with them, they were like toast. <laughs> because they couldn't refute the fact that this guy that's been crippled for his whole life had been laying out there in front of the temple was running around like a maniac praising God. <laughs> they were sounded like everybody else. Yeah, but... In their astonishment, they were having to deal. Yeah, I mean, they, they didn't have it figured out. See, we think that we have it figured out only in that, that we are filled with the Spirit. They weren't filled with the Spirit. They're trying to figure out what's going on here, and they're trying to, they're, they're not going to try to broker a deal. So they ordered them to withdraw. They sent them away, and they wanted to, they wanted to confer with one another, didn't they? And so verse 15 says, they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? Don't you love that? <laughs> As opposed to what they could have said is, do you suppose they're speaking the truth? Mm-hmm. Maybe we should investigate that just a little bit. You see, they weren't the least bit curious. They didn't care. They cared about their power and their prestige and their money. So they said, what are we going to do with these guys? They, everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have performed a, a, this notable sign, and, and we, we can't deny it. The proof was there. I just, I don't know if they had a private email server in the basement or not, but they're trying to figure this out. They're... they're I mean, the proof is there. The evidence is there. Everything's there. They're going to scramble like, like madmen. 72 madmen. They're going to scramble now to try to figure out what to do about this. So it says in verse, in verse 17, But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer in this name. That's the best they could come up with. 
Well, you know, they had to have heard the rumors that there was no body in the tomb and that people had seen Jesus. They, they had to have heard that. Yep. And what are they, how are they going to disprove? Well, with the other, not only that, they have the proof, they've had the testimony, they've ha- they have all of this, they got everything they need to say, whoa. Maybe I should get interested in what they're saying here. I mean, because Peter is clearly speaking powerfully. It is God speaking, just God using him. He's just speaking through him. No different than any one of us speaking the truth to somebody out there on the sidewalk if we left here tonight. It's the same thing. But in this moment in time, he happens to be before the Sanhedrin. And so there's 72 of them. He's there. They're uneducated. They're trying to figure out who are these guys and this power that they're talking about in the name of Jesus Christ. And they're, because their whole modus operandi is trying to figure out how to get them the heck out of there to control their power base. That's what they, that's what they were interested in because they were dealing with authority. See, they were completely unconvinced that there was any other authority other than their own. Because God was distant. Boy, I mean, what's the lesson for us? If God is distant and not involved, I mean, if God's not involved in your life, you can bring us to whatever you want. Yeah. I think the thing I get out of this, oh, I'm sorry, Bill. I thought you were acknowledging No, go ahead. I am. Uh, <coughs> I always acknowledge people with facial hair first. About the Sadducees and Pharisees. What I get out of this is when Peter and these guys hung out with Jesus for three years, they enjoyed the adulation. They felt good. They were around these crowds. They were with. They were getting some of the notoriety. And what happened? When Peter was leave, living in his own kingdom, and these apostles were living in their own kingdom, for their own kingdom, uh, they ran. Peter denied Christ three times. The rest of them ran and hid. The only one that had any guess was John. And so what happened, once... Once they start, once they started living for Christ's kingdom, the Holy Spirit descended on them, and the uh, then they were filled with the power. Same thing with Christians today. We like to go. To, I don't know about this group, but the reason Christianity Every doesn't work for a lot of people is because they still want to live in their kingdom, and but they want the adulation of being with the Savior on Sunday, and until you until you die to your kingdom. And you embrace God's kingdom, it doesn't work. And that's now, why there's many Christian divorces and as many, you know, Christian kids on drugs and things like that because uh, uh, there's a difference of, you know, where, what kingdom are you living in? And I'm speaking for myself. Yeah, amen. Amen. So the application we see pretty clearly here, starting in verse 18. He said, then they called them again, and, and they commanded them not to speak. They called them back in. So they had, uh, you know, the jury was in. <laughs> and so they, they, brought the, they brought them in, stood them before the jury, and the judge then tells them, hey, they were commanded not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But here's old Peter. Remember the guy that used to stick his foot in his mouth all the time? Here he is. No more. Empowered by the Spirit, this is a man that does not stick his foot in his mouth. And he calls them, he just calls it out. He says, but Peter and John replied. Not one of them. You notice that both of them replied? Because it's all been about Peter pretty much up to this point. John's been pretty quiet. 
But Luke tells us that Peter and John both replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you? Friend. Because they were religious people, remember? Are we supposed to listen to you or to God? Oh, you talk about an affront. <laughs> now they're really torqued off. Yeah. Okay, that becomes all of a sudden pretty personal because they're the religious elite. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They didn't have any choice. They had to let them go because they could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. You see, there was a crowd. Now, now it wasn't just Peter and John, was it? Now there's thousands of people out there. Now, all of a sudden, if you see it here, the tables have turned. There was two of them in the Sanhedrin with 72. The power brokers of the day. And now, all of a sudden, the power brokers of the day are trying to figure out to, what to do with, with John and with, and with Peter. Because all of a sudden, outside the doors, there's thousands of people that are praising God. They come to faith in Christ filled with the Spirit. And they were just like Peter and John. All of a sudden, this thing got too big, too fast. I just, I just love that. The church, I mean, I, you know, I don't know. Maybe one day I'll have the opportunity to ask the Lord myself very personally and sit down with them and just have a conversation. But I'm just wondering, by God's design and His sovereignty, that He did this and the church exploded. It just exploded. And I, I, I wonder... You know, clearly it was by design. I get that. Um, but I'd love to hear what he was thinking strategically. Because <laughs> you know, there's some strategy associated with some of this. And so, you know, they, they, had, to, they had to get rid of these guys because, because the, the, this, this man that was healed, they'd been walking past him for some, for some time. He, over, he was over 40 years old. He'd been crippled his whole life. And he was laying there. And these same Sadducees were going by him. And here's these two compassionate guys that are that are bold speaking to them and they just didn't know what to do with them and so I think John and Peter win, they win one for the gipper here don't they? they really do because I think that I think that the Sanhedrin was defeated the Sanhedrin was defeated on this day by virtue of John appropriating and we go home with this guy John appropriating in the moment just who he was, the fullness of the Holy Spirit in him, which is the same Holy Spirit that fills us, that we have access to 100% of in whatever gifting God has given us in the moment. And that was the setup from chapter 3 where there was the adversity of the cripple and nothing more than the opportunity that God presented to them that Peter chose to take advantage of. It was, it's, it was like a garage sale. That's all it was, Brenda. It was a garage sale and he asked can I have something? And they said, yep, I don't got no money, but what I got, we're going to give you. I got the power of the Spirit. So I think that we, I think there's, I don't know about you, but I am 
grateful that I can walk out of here and shut these lights off and go out the door and know that this is real and true and the same power of the Spirit is 100% available to me and you to deal with any <coughs> adversarial situation I'm dealing with, any relational situation I'm dealing with, any political, moral, religious, anything we can deal with in the power of the Spirit by just making a choice. Mm-hmm.